This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 309, entitled, Did Jesus Have to Be God to Atone for Sins? This is a common argument that gets put out on the internet and on social media. People will say that Jesus absolutely had to be God. He had to be Yahweh in order for his sacrifice to be perfect, in order to deal with all of the sins of the world. And that's an argument that is constantly made. But is this actually what the New Testament teaches? Now, before we get into this week's episode, I want to say that there is a big announcement that I'm going to make on the first of the year. A huge, huge announcement. I can't tell you right now, but stay tuned to social media, either on Facebook or on Twitter. I guess now it's called X. And if you do so, you'll be able to hear the good news. And if you aren't following on social media, then I'll be sure to talk about the big announcement on next week's episode. So, did Jesus have to be God in order to die for the sins of humanity? Did Jesus have to be God in order for his death to perfectly atone for all of humankind's transgressions? This seems to be a little odd when we look at simple passages that are plain and self-evident, like 1 Timothy 6.16, which says that God alone possesses immortality. God alone possesses immortality, meaning God is immortal. He cannot die. He is innately immortal. He cannot die. It's impossible for him to die. And, oh, by the way, the Greek of 1 Timothy 6.16 indicates that the one who alone is immortal is actually a single person. We know that to be the Father. So if God can't die, how is it possible that an argument could be made that Jesus had to be God in order to die for the sins of the world? I thought God cannot die. I thought he lives forever and ever and that he was eternal. Well, this week's episode will examine what the New Testament authors have to say about the death of Jesus to determine if he had to be Yahweh, the God of Israel, in order to successfully pay for the sins of humanity. So, are the transgressions of the human race so severe that only God himself could atone for them as the rightful representative on the cross? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the human Jesus who dies on behalf of others. And I want to give a quote from each of the four gospel evangelists. I'll start with Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, and there's also a parallel in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Well, we can see from this passage that Jesus 
calls himself the Son of Man, who is that human representative of the suffering people of God, according to Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus says that the Son of Man came to give his life, literally in Greek, to give his soul as a ransom for many. So here we have Jesus describing himself in his own words as someone who's going to give his entire life, his entire soul, in order to ransom many people. But he does so in the capacity as the Son of Man, namely as the human figure. So it seems that Jesus believes that a human being is the one that's going to die to give his entire life in order to be a successful ransom for sinners. That's clearly what Mark believes, and that's what Matthew believes. What about Luke? So in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, verse 10. So it's similar to what we saw in Matthew and Mark, but here, Jesus, again, speaking of himself as the Son of Man, describes his mission as the one that has come to seek and, more importantly for our study, the one who has come to save that which is lost. So who is the one that's able to save, to rescue, and to deliver? Who's the one that's able to bring salvation for the lost? It seems to be the Son of Man. Again, the human figure, the figure that represents the people of God. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are three earliest records of the life and ministry of Jesus. It seems that Jesus believes that he, in the capacity as the Son of Man, is able to save and to ransom many lost persons. But what about the Gospel of John? Most people think that the Gospel of John has the highest Christology. I would beg to differ. But let's see what the Gospel of John has to say. I want to look at a really interesting passage after the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11 that gets left out of these particular conversations, but I think it's very fascinating for the ways in which it impacts our particular study for this week. So in John chapter 11, starting in verse 47, it says, Therefore the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's John chapter 11, verses 47 through 52. So we have the Pharisees and the chief priests coming together. And what do they say? They note that Jesus is performing lots of signs. And that if he continues to do so, then all of the people are going to put their trust in Jesus. And they won't be 
following after the Pharisees. In doing so, they called Jesus a man. They call him a human being. They use the Greek noun anthropos there in verse 47. And then we got Caiaphas showing up. And Caiaphas says something interesting here, and it gets overlooked. Caiaphas said that one man needs to die for all the people in order that the entire nation would not perish. One man, one human being, and he also calls Jesus an anthropos, the Greek noun for human being. Now, you might make the argument that, well, in the Gospel of John, there is this theme of misunderstanding, and perhaps they are misunderstanding who Jesus is, or they don't have a full account of who he is. But what the narrator tells us is that Caiaphas was accurately prophesying, meaning that God inspired the speech of what Caiaphas was actually saying, meaning Caiaphas' words in describing Jesus as the person who's going to die for all the people, precisely as a human being, is actually true. It's actually what God wanted Caiaphas to say, and the narrator explains that. So Caiaphas accurately prophesies that Jesus is a man who's going to die for all the people so the whole nation would not perish. Now, what Caiaphas thought that he was saying was that, well, let's just get rid of Jesus so that our entire nation won't perish at the hands of the Romans. But what the prophecy actually meant was that Jesus is a human being who is able to die on behalf of the people so that they will not perish, kind of like John 3.16. God gave his unique son so that those who believe in him will not perish. And so we have an accurate prophecy describing Jesus precisely as a member of the human race, a man, a human being, who is going to die for all the people. Caiaphas seems to say, under the direct inspiration of God himself, that a human being can die for the sins of the people. And that's very fascinating. At least the argument of the Gospel of John is not that Jesus had to be God in order to die for the people. It seems to be that Jesus had to be a human being to die for the people. And that is accurately what the prophecy says. And that, of course, is what the Gospel of John says as a whole. Let's move to our second point. Point number two, the second Adam who redeems humanity that is represented by the first Adam. You probably noticed in the uploads of our former episodes on the YouTube channel that I've been uploading episodes on Adam Christology. I've looked at the Adam Christology of 1 Corinthians and Romans, and this week I'll upload the Adam Christology of Philippians, and even the book of Hebrews. But I wanted to look at a couple of those passages because it seems to indicate, according to Paul's theology, that Jesus is the one human being who undoes the transgressions of the first human being, namely Adam. So this is spelled out most efficiently in Romans chapter 5. So I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, 
even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offensive Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions resulting in justification. For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It's Romans 5, verses 12 through 19. And you can see Paul is describing how Adam is the original human being who represents all those people who have sinned because of his transgression and they were sinning in the likeness of Adam. And on the other side of the coin, we have Jesus who is described as a man. He's called an anthropos, just like Adam is. Adam is called a human being, an anthropos, in chapter 5, verse 12. And Jesus is called a human being, an anthropos, in chapter 5, verse 15. So Paul uses the same word to describe both of these human figures who represent humanity. Jesus is the counterpart of Adam. It's through the obedience of Jesus, the one man Jesus, that many are made righteous. And of course, the fact that Jesus had to be obedient indicates that there was someone to be obedient to, namely to God. Jesus is the obedient Son of God, and Jesus brings about righteousness and justification and the free gift in the capacity as a human being. And it's his act of obedience and his death that undoes the transgression of Adam. And it's this sort of transaction, like the obedient act of Jesus deals with the disobedient transgression of Adam. It's one man for one man. Chapter 5, verse 15 says that the transgression of the one man, Adam, was undone by the one man, Jesus Christ, the one human being, Jesus Christ. Jesus undid the sin of Adam in the capacity as a human being, not in the capacity of a God-man or as a pre-existent spirit being that took on flesh. Jesus did it in the capacity as a human being, the same sort of human being that Adam was. And Adam didn't have two natures, and Adam wasn't an angel that was also human. Chapter 5, verse 19 says that the disobedience of the one man, Adam, was undone by the obedience of the one, namely the one man, Jesus. And of course, this act of obedience resulted in many being declared righteous. It seems quite clear that Paul believed that a human being undid all of these sins of Adam. Jesus had to be a man, just like Adam, the second Adam, 
in order to atone for the sins of the world. We can see a little bit more of this in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 21, where Paul says that, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And then he impacts a statement in verse 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 22. So it's clear. We have a human being, by a human being came death, and by another human being came the resurrection of the dead. And Paul defines who those human beings are. The first human being that brought about death was Adam. The second human being was Christ. Those who are in Christ will be made alive. They will be made alive in the future resurrection. And so it seems that Jesus, in the capacity as a man, as a human being, a member of the human race, undid the death that Adam brought about. So Jesus dealt with Adam's transgression as a human being, not as God, not as Yahweh, and certainly not as an angel from heaven. This moves us to our third point, point number three, the human who redeemed and ransomed. We move to a different author. We're going to look here at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, which says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. That's Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16, another passage that gets left out in these sort of discussions. So we have Jesus, and the author describes Jesus as he himself, putting the emphasis there on Jesus being a full, complete person, using that singular pronoun. He himself, the intensive use of the nominative third-person pronoun, oftos. And then it describes the fact that the enmity was abolished in the death of, quote, his flesh, namely, as a human being, as a fleshly human being, it is the flesh that removed the enmity between human beings and God. It was the death of the fleshly human being that abolished that enmity. And just to be clear, the author clearly distinguishes the Jesus who died from the God with whom the recipients are reconciled. He himself is the one that reconciles the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, into a single body to God. So Jesus distinguished from God, and of course Jesus is the one that died, and he himself is the one that's able to make the two into a single man. So Ephesians indicates that Jesus is a single complete being, not a God-man or a person with two natures or a spirit being that took on flesh. Jesus is a full person, a single self, 
who died and that his flesh dealt with the enmity that kept people away from God. And Jesus did this on the cross. And of course, that enmity was put to death in his own flesh. Let's move along to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, another passage that is very important to this discussion. In 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 4, it says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Testimony given at the proper time. That's 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 6. All right, what's clear here? God has two desires. He desires that everyone would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course, we see how that salvation comes into effect, and we learn the knowledge of the truth that God desires that people would come to possess. In this description, God describes men with the plural noun anthropos, and the same noun is used for Jesus in verse 5. He is the anthropos, Christ Jesus, the man, the human being, Christ Jesus. And then we see that the man, Christ Jesus, is a person who gave himself as a ransom, using the reflexive pronoun aofton in Greek. The human being gave himself as a ransom for all. Notice, it's not the one God who gave himself as a ransom for all. It is the man who acts as the mediator between the one God, of course, indicating self-evidently that Jesus is distinguished from the one God. And so the man, Jesus, is the one who gave his entire self in order to ransom the sins of humanity. And this, of course, is how people become saved. They become saved by accepting the death of this human being who died as a ransom for all. And, of course, God desires that people would come to the knowledge of this particular truth. So the author very clearly could have said that it is the one God who gave himself as a ransom for all, but he doesn't. He describes the man Jesus, the one who is distinguished from the one God, who was able to ransom people precisely as a human being, as a member of the human race. A man was sufficient to ransom the sins of mankind. And this, of course, is the testimony that is given at the proper time that, as the passage goes on, the author says that he is going to preach. Let's move to Hebrews, our last passage that we're going to look at. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 6. This says, But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? For you have made him... For a little while, lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God 
he might taste death for everyone. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. So the author of Hebrews here is citing Psalm 8, which describes human beings. It actually describes Adam, but Adam is kind of the representative of human beings that was made a little bit lower, but ultimately God has crowned humanity with God's own glory and God's own honor and has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so the author of Hebrews is citing this passage and using it to refer to Jesus. And so in doing so, the author describes Jesus by quoting a psalm about human beings, about humanity, about members of the human race. And it calls that human being an anthropos, a man. Of course, it has the parallel, the Son of Man, which is not the same Son of Man as Daniel chapter 7. Son of Man and man are considered to be kind of synonymous terms. It means kind of like mortal or a son of a mortal. That's the way it's kind of understood within the Hebrew text. And so we can see him who was made lower than the angels was a man. He was a human being. And of course, him who was made lower than the angels is quite clearly defined by the author as Jesus. And what did this Jesus, who is a human being, he's a man, he's a son of man, what did he do? He died. And not just that he died, he suffered death. And not just that he died and suffered death, he tasted death for everyone. He died for everyone. So look, who is the person who died for everyone? It's a human being. It's a man. It's Jesus. And the author of Hebrews indicates that that is in fulfillment of Psalm 8. Jesus was a human being, and in that capacity, he tasted death for everyone. He died for everyone in the capacity as a human being. And of course, Psalm 8 distinguishes the human being who was made a little while lower from God, the one who crowned him with glory and honor. The two are not collapsed into a single being. No one thinks that the human being originally in Psalm 8, was Yahweh himself. No, it's clearly Adam as a representative of all human beings in their potential. So here we have Jesus being distinguished from God, and the author indicates that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, would taste death for everyone. The two are not confused. Now, you might think to yourself, but wait a minute, what about Acts chapter 20, verse 28? Doesn't Acts chapter 20, verse 28 say that God purchased the church with his blood? Well, let's look at that. Let's look at that particular passage. This is our fourth and final point. What about Acts chapter 20, verse 28? So we have a passage that when you look at it in different translations, you're going to get something different. Let's try to explain why that is the case. So in the New American Standard Version, Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Acts 20, verse 28. So here it seems to indicate that we have God who purchased the church with his own blood. Now, the New Revised Standard Version ends it by saying that we have the church of God 
which he purchased with the blood of his own son. Trying to clarify what's going on there, because what we have here is we have some ambiguous Greek that's going on. And so in the Greek, it says, via to ematos to eviu, through the blood of his own. Okay, so is this a reference to his own, namely his own blood, that is God's own blood? Or is this a reference to his own being a term of endearment for someone other than God? We might talk about his own, namely his own dear son, which is why the New Revised Standard Version supplied the word son in order to clarify that particular point. Now, the textual commentary on the Greek New Testament by Metzger has this to say about the particular passage, because it was confusing and it actually led to a variety of changes in the manuscripts. So Metzger says, quote, this absolute use of o evios, the phrase his own, is found in Greek papyri as a term of endearment referring to near relatives. It is possible, therefore, that his own was a title that early Christians gave to Jesus, comparable to the beloved, and of course he points out Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where Paul refers to God who did not spare his own son, using the word evios there in the genitive. So Metzger is suggesting that there is evidence in the Greek papyri that indicates that the phrase his own is not a reflexive reference to his own referring to something belonging to the subject, but actually referring to a distinct person, a near relative, in a way of describing someone in an endearing sort of description. His own dear one, you might say. This is why the New Revised Standard Version, rightly in my opinion, put in the translation, the blood of his own son. And so, the New American Standard might be more accurately translated based on the intention of the author as saying that we have the Church of God, which he purchased with the blood of his own, namely the blood of his own dear one, the blood of his own relative, namely Jesus. So it's not God's own blood, it's the blood of his own, namely his own son. So that's what's going on in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So, in order to summarize our findings, what have we observed? Well, number one, we observed that God can't die because he is innately immortal. God alone possesses immortality. Therefore, it seems that on the surface, God couldn't die if he even wanted to in order to die for the sins of the world, because that would be impossible. God can't die in the same way that God cannot lie. Number two, we see quite clearly that Jesus, the Son, did in fact die, and at least eight different authors in the New Testament described the atoning, redemptive, and ransoming nature of Jesus' death, not just that he died, but the fact that he atoned, redeemed, and ransomed in terms of Jesus being a man, a human being, 
a member of the human race. Thirdly, the only passage that could be put forth to even suggest that God died is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This passage is grammatically ambiguous. It has to be forcefully read against clearer statements that are made by the author Luke, and it has to ignore all of the other clear evidence that we observed in our earlier passages. Number four, no New Testament author portrays Jesus as possessing two natures. Jesus does not have a God nature and a human nature. He's not 100% God and 100% man. There's just no evidence for that. And there's no evidence that the New Testament authors thought that Jesus only died on his human side. And therefore, the, his immortal God side would continue to live on. Just no author believes that. There's no indication that they thought that. In fact, Nobody in the first century believed this contradictory doctrine that was actually formulated in the fifth century AD. And as I try to remind my students, it is historically anachronistic to read fifth century AD theologies and ideas back into first century documents. And lastly, we can answer the question, did Jesus have to be God in order to atone for sins? And the answer is quite clearly no. Jesus actually had to be a human being in order to atone for sins, at least according to many of the New Testament authors in their clear, self-evident statements on the atonement. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we explore whether Jesus is the root of David or the shoot of David. And of course, we explore why this question actually matters in terms of the subject of pre-existence. So please look forward to our next episode. Now this is the end of the year. If you're one of those persons that likes to do the last of their giving by the end of the year so you can write it off on your taxes, you of course are welcome to make a donation to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. You can do so through the YouTube channel. You can also do it through PayPal. Check out the episode description for a PayPal link. If you want to support the podcast absolutely for free, just be sure to subscribe, to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, and of course, to share your favorite episodes like this one with your friends. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, take care and have a happy new year.